a warning. Some of the content discussed in today's episode, some viewers may find disturbing. March the 12th, 2006, the height of the Iraq war. In the dry heat of the desert. Four US soldiers are enjoying their day off, still keeping an eye on their duties, manning the checkpoint in the small village of Al Mahmoudia, south of Baghdad. The four men had secretly smuggled in some alcohol, some whiskey to mix with their energy drinks. They're laughing, and chatting as they share jokes and play cards. Stephen Green, one of the four men, a born and bred Texan, after a while stands up and stretches. Wiping the sand from his eyes, he picks up a rod of iron, a makeshift golf club and a couple of golf balls. He's practicing his swing. He swings back and forth listening to the rod as it cuts through the air. But he's not looking at his makeshift club or at his golf ball. He's staring at the house opposite, at a little girl doing her chores and tending to her garden. Fourteen-year-old Abir Kasim Hamza al-Janabi is the eldest daughter of her tight-knit family. They all live together in their one-bedroom house. She dreams, though, of a better life for herself outside of her little village. She dreams that she and her six-year-old sister might one day go to university. A far-off prospect, of course, for a bear's little sister, who, at the moment, is too busy worrying about where's the best place to hide when playing hide-and-seek with her mother. But Stephen Green had other plans. Fueled by his hatred for Iraqis, he turns around, sits down, and slumps lazily into his chair, still staring at little Abir. He makes plans with his three friends to blow off some steam, to beat up some Iraqi locals, nothing out of the ordinary, apparently. But this time... His plans are different. He points across the road at Little Abir and says to his friends that it's been too long. He plans to rape her. Dressed in off-duty clothes later that afternoon, in broad daylight, the four US soldiers walk to the house and burst through the back door, grabbing Abir. They separate her from her family. Stephen Green walks into the kitchen and huddles up Abir's sobbing six-year-old sister with her mother and father. She begins to whine and scream, so he shoots her in the face and her parents in the chest multiple times as Abir screams next door. He eventually staggers next door to see his friends pinning down the girl. 
Stephen Green rapes her and leaves her for dead. Panic this war crime would be traced back to him. The four men hurriedly run back to their checkpoint and grab some gasoline and pour it on Abir's body and the whole house, burning it to the ground. Stephen Green's crimes weren't discovered until after he had left the army. And when he was eventually tried in 2009, the Kentucky judge asked him one question, the question you must be asking yourself. How? How on earth could anybody do that to four fellow human beings? To which Stephen responded, there's not a word that would describe how much I hated these people. You see, I wasn't thinking that these people were humans. This episode is in dedication to Abir and her family. May she rest in peace. You're listening to The Inhuman Condition, the podcast where we shine a light onto a simple but ultimately troubling question. Why do ordinary people, you and I, do evil and wicked things? this episode, we're going to look at dehumanisation, how it happens, why it happens, and how it's led to some of humanity's darkest days. And to answer these questions, we're going to visit hospital wards, Trump rallies, volcanoes, and chair factories. But before we return to Stephen Green and the story of that atrocity, we're going to look at dehumanisation more generally and what it really means. In order to get a better grasp of dehumanisation, let's establish a definition. Have I been dehumanising? If I call people animals? What about when people call the police the pigs? Or when people claim to know the real truth and call the rest of us sheep? Or sheeple? No, none of these really are examples of dehumanisation. It's paramount to emphasise that dehumanisation is not a comparison. That is, when people dehumanise others, they actually conceive of them as subhuman creatures. And yes, while there are some that will call the gullible sheep and police pigs, you wouldn't treat them as such. You wouldn't feed the police pig feed. 
If this were a real example of dehumanization, you may as well see those individuals as, though outwardly human-looking, inwardly subhuman, inwardly animal, literally a pig in human clothing. But no, we're using a comparison. The Nazis, on the other hand, as perhaps the most famous example, well, when they call the Jews the Untermenschen, which, by the way, translates to the under-people. Well, they weren't being metaphorical. They were being literal. According to Nazi ideology, the Jews were of a different species to the Nazis, to the Aryans. And so we return to Iraq and to Stephen Green, asking that question which he was asked in court. How on earth could you do that? Yes, well, that's, that's the question, isn't it? And the reason we ask that question is because we all know, despite what we see in the movies, that it's very difficult psychologically to, to kill another human being up close and in cold blood or to inflict atrocities on them. Uh, very difficult, that is, for people who are somewhere near the, the, um, the normal. That's David Livingston-Smith, by the way, professor of philosophy at New England University. If you had to choose one, and if there is such a thing, he's the world expert in dehumanisation with loads of books on the topic. I'd recommend them if you're interested. And one of his theories relates to the world and how we see it, and how we see our place in it. Here he is again. From time immemorial, human beings have conceived of the universe as a hierarchy of value, with God at the top and, and inert matter at the bottom and everything else arranged in between in what was called the scala naturae, the, scale, the ladder of nature or the, the great chain of being. And uh, the, uh, this gives us an, a measure of greater or lesser. Now, this model of the universe doesn't make scientific sense. It, Post-Darwin, we know nature isn't a hierarchy. Nature is a ramifying bush. Nonetheless, we something for some reason, we continue to conceive of the universe in that fashion, and we relegate non-human creatures to a lower position on the uh, great chain of being than ourselves. So apparently, we relegate animals as lower on the chain of existence than ourselves. Well, seems obvious to me, but let's set out to see whether we agree with that. Let's try and set out to test ourselves whether we believe that this theory is true. Now, I want you to imagine that one day you wake up and you find yourself in the grasp of an evil masochistic supervillain. In front of you, hanging over the precipice, looking down into the gorge where you find a pool of lava, are two baskets. Each basket has a different animal sitting inside it. And he tells you that he's going to show you two creatures, and you have to choose which basket will contain the animal that lives and which will be plunged into the burning magma. Okay. In the first instance, you see in your basket, on your left-hand side, a little puppy sitting in its basket, squirming, looking at you with its huge puppy dog eyes. 
and in the right, you are told that there is an ant crawling around. Not that you can see it at all, of course. Now, which would you save? Not satisfied, the supervillain swaps out the dog and the ant. For on the left, a little fish swimming about in its fish tank, and a petrified sheep bleating wildly with its scrambling legs. Which would you save? And finally, the supervillain lives up to his name, and he presents you with your third and most diabolical choice. On the left, you see a little human boy, panicking and screaming for his mother. And on the right, you see a chicken flapping its wings frantically. Which would you save? All right. Now, how did you choose? Which did you choose to save? Now, I assume that between the puppy and the ant, you save the puppy. Between the little fish and the sheep, you save the sheep. And I'm guessing between the little boy and the chicken, you saved the little boy. You have, my friend, inadvertently created a hierarchy of animals. Theoretically, at least, with humans at the top and probably bugs at the bottom. And I think that if we did this enough times, we'd find out that you'd probably save the orangutan over the leopard, probably save the elephant over the squirrel, but we don't need to bother with all that. The point stands. Some animals you clearly value more than others. Okay, but you're a normal person. A person who couldn't just commit mass murder out of nowhere, right? What if we presented this game to a Nazi? What if that Nazi was told that he had to choose between, on his left, a Jewish baby, and on his right, a fat, squealing rat? Well, it seems like an easy choice, right? Well, not for the Nazi, apparently. The Nazi doesn't just think that the Jewish child is like vermin. No, he sees the Jewish child as vermin. He looks at a flesh and blood baby and sees a rat. He would have a difficult time to choose between the two because he sees two of the same species. How do you end up in the situation where you look at a baby and see a different species? And how do you end up in a situation where your neighbours and your fellow countrymen all seem to believe the same thing? Well, as I'm sure you'll realise, it doesn't just happen overnight. What you have to realise is that the majority of the perpetrators of genocide are psychologically normal. That was the disturbing discovery of psychoanalysts when they looked at the Hutus, who had murdered the Tutsis during the Rwandan genocide of the 1990s. And of course the same is true more generally. Perpetrators of genocide and mass killing 
can't really be identified a priori as having the personalities of killers. Most of them, of course not all, but most, aren't mentally impaired. Nor have they been identified as sadists, nor are they victims of an abusive background. Most seem to defy easy demographic categorization. Among them, we find educated and well-to-do people, as well as simple and impoverished people. We find religious folk, as well as the agnostics and atheists. We find people who are loving parents, as well as people who have difficulty initiating and sustaining satisfying personal relationships. We find young people, we find old people, we find people who aren't really actively involved in the political, religious or social groups responsible for institutionalising the process of destruction, as well as those who are. In short, we find ordinary people. People who went to school, people who fought with siblings, celebrated birthdays, listened to music, played with friends. The majority of the perpetrators, the people who have demonised and dehumanised a certain group, are not distinguished by background, personality, or even previous political engagement. As James Waller says in his essay on the nature of extraordinary evil, We need no longer ask who these people are. We know who they are. They are you. And they are me. There is now a more urgent question to ask. How are ordinary people, as we've established, people like you and me, made into perpetrators of genocide and mass killing? Well, it happens, it seems, in five steps. And what's disturbing is that the first of these you can see in the 21st century. In fact, you don't even have to leave British shores. Step one. Hint at the subpar intelligence or morality of your group. In order for the minority group to become ostracized, the ego of the majority has to be assured of its own greatness the majority needs to confirm that every other group is inferior. So one way to do this is to make them seem less evolved. In a 2015 study, participants were given the picture of the ascent of man. That's the picture, by the way, that shows a slow progression from ape to human over the course of five pictures. They were instructed to show, using a slider, how evolved each group was. Whilst it would seem common knowledge, obvious that every individual on earth is represented by the fully evolved man, the man the furthest on the right, many of the Americans who participated in the survey placed Arabs and Muslims multiple points lower than themselves.
Step two, use infestation analogies. The majority group must be made to feel like the minority is a threat to their health or safety in some way. A prime example of this, and I know it's a cliche, but obviously cliches are cliches for a reason, is a Donald Trump tweet from 2018. And seeing as it's a tweet, there's obviously no audio, so you'll have to excuse my poor impression. The Democrats don't care about crime. They want illegal immigrants to pour into and infest our country. See? Told you it was bad. Oh, and if you think this is a Trump or America problem, or if I could use this term, a post-2016 problem, well, here's David Cameron in 2011 labelling African migrants as a swarm, like insects. Very testing, I accept that, because you've got a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean, seeking a better life, wanting to come to Britain, because Britain has got jobs, it's got a job... The use of the word to infest, and other words like pour into, make the American and British people feel unsafe, and make them feel as though a large number of these gang members and terrorists and criminals are attempting to invade the country. Whilst, as you know, the truth is, the overwhelming majority of these people are just looking for a better life outside of the country that they started in. Step three, refer to and compare the group to animals. This is a well-known tactic that was used primarily in the Holocaust, of course. Jews, as I've already said, were compared to rats in various forms of propaganda, including art pieces, posters, films, and in speeches from prominent officials throughout the Third Reich. This again makes the majority group feel like the minority is subhuman and inferior, allowing them to become more disposable. As a precursor to the Rwandan genocide, before the Hutus started murdering the Tutsis, they called them Inyenzi, cockroaches. Step four, make threats of violence. This is where the dehumanization turns from a prejudicial issue into a precursor for actual violence and danger. When a group is encouraged by the leader or by fellow group members to become violent with a dehumanised group, they'll often follow along blindly because they've been primed with the idea that these individuals are not human. There seems to be little regard for morality and consequence. This type of incitement is... And again, I'm so sorry that this seems so cliché, but it's seen through another Trump quote while discussing the gang MS-13, a gang that operates in Mexico. Trump says here, But we'd like to get them out a lot faster. And when you see these towns, and when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand on... This quote, directed, by the way, at a crowd of law enforcement and police officers in the US, shows that violence against these individuals is totally okay. In fact, it's being endorsed by the former president. 
The fifth step, our final step, is the most dramatic and the most unforgivable. Removal of the group from society by violent means. This step is carried out in various ways. The deportation of citizens, the development of ghettos, concentration camps, or in the most sinister cases, by mass execution. This step simply verifies to the majority that these group members are dangerous, subhuman, and that they deserve to be confined or removed. And in the case of ghettos and concentration camps, that they should be caged like animals at a zoo. So we now know how you dehumanise, what steps you'd take. But there's kind of the obvious question that remains. Why would you dehumanise? And it's important to realise that dehumanisation happens, I think, for two reasons. One, someone from above has decided that a job will be done more efficiently if they dehumanise a situation or person. Or two... Dehumanization was the unintentional side effect to a solution to another problem. Let's examine reason one. And to examine it, we're going to go to the hospital. A surgeon is going into the operating theatre to perform a difficult surgery. There's been a terrible plane crash and the patient is on life support with a severely damaged trachea. The surgeon takes out her tools and decides that she's going to need to perform a delicate operation. But she's afraid and stressed that if she makes a mistake, one wrong slip, and some child may never see their mother again. No, no, cut, cut. At that moment in time, the surgeon doesn't really see a mother on the operating table in front of her, she sees, as I suppose she should do to do the best job she possibly can, a flesh-and-blood machine that needs fixing. She tries as best as she can not to allow her all-too-human concerns and inhibitions to get in the way and distract. So we leave the operating room and we go down the corridor and into the main ward, brightly lit, where we see the head nurse performing triage. What does it mean to perform triage, by the way? Well, in short, a triage is when the lead nurse decides who is of highest priority to be seen by the surgeons. It's a stressful job, to say the least. And with hundreds of victims from the plane crash, she's never had a more difficult decision to make in her life. But in order to save the maximum possible lives, she's got to sort people appropriately, looking at the facts, not at the emotion or the humanity, who's showing signs of breathing, who is bleeding seriously, can they walk? And of course, this already undesirable task has been made impossible by the coronavirus pandemic. As hospitals are overflowing around the world, nurses have to decide who gets the oxygen first, a terminally ill patient or a mother of three, the young or the old. 
Italy saw its deadliest day from the coronavirus as the death toll jumped by more than 600 in 24 hours. The plans we have is to contain. Contain the disease outbreak in Taiwan. We have very little problem in this country at this moment. Five. People have contracted the virus. Let us build up our confidence. We will eventually win. Many of our countries in Europe are now acting to flatten, flatten the, the curve used when talking about reducing the number of coronavirus cases. But what about reason number two? dehumanization as an unintentional side effect to a solution to another problem. Well, to show you an example of reason two, I'm going to start with a chair and a copy of Karl Marx's Das Kapital. Whilst I don't want to get too political in this podcast, and whilst Marx has obviously said quite a lot of controversial stuff about workers of the world having nothing to lose but their chains and having worlds to win, yada yada yada. He did make a few very apt criticisms of capitalism. Bear with me. I'm not going to talk about all of them, just one. One about a chair. Marx says that pre-industrialization, if you wanted, for example, a chair, you would go to purchase one from someone who spent all day making chairs, an independent chairmaker, if there is such a thing. And whilst it took you, yes, four or five days to receive your wicker chair, it was brimming with personality of the old lady who made it. You sort of get the same feeling these days when you buy something, let's say, from an independent seller on a clothing website like Depop or Etsy, that provides something for you full of personality. But in post-industrial capitalism, after the 18th and 19th century, what mattered most was making as much money as you can. And so someone worked out that you could produce far more chairs per day if you could subdivide the stages of chair production and get someone, or lots of someones, to specialise in each stage. So one person spends all day cutting straw, I don't know, the other person spends all day carving wood, another putting the straw and wood together. Well, each by themselves, if they were doing the whole process as independent chair makers, well, they might make two chairs a day. But together, specialising in their tasks, they can make 40 chairs a day. Sounds good, right? Well, what was Marx's criticism of the whole thing? Well, he was saying that the workers, whilst being more efficient, have become alienated by the process. They no longer identify with the product they're making. They don't see themselves in the chair. Chair production has had the humanity taken out of it as a byproduct of making chair production more efficient. So that's an example of dehumanization as an unintentional side effect to a solution to another problem. But why does dehumanization happen on the more sinister occasions? The matter of why we dehumanize and why we commit mass murder is one that is probably deserving of its own episode, really. Because the question can get very complicated depending on who we're talking about. It's easier to understand why soldiers dehumanise their victims. While they do so because they've probably been fed propaganda and lies. But if we go one step up, what about the generals? The generals who are constantly dehumanising the enemy. Well, they're dehumanising so that the soldiers, who they're in charge of, will be more remorseless and achieve better results in the context of a military sphere. 
But you see the problem, right? We continue following up the chain of command until we hit someone, eventually, who started the whole process, who decided to make that certain group less than human. Now, why did they want to dehumanise that group? Well, if we were to take the example of the Nazis, and I guess more specifically Adolf Hitler, appropriate, it seems, on this day of all days, as an example, we ask ourselves, where did Hitler's anti-Jewish sentiment come from? Well, there's been so much historical debate on the matter. I mean, some historians allude to the consistent presence of the anti-Jewishness in German politics since the nation's inception in 1870. But then there are others who point to Hitler's own life and say that it came from within him. Then there are others who say that Hitler and the Nazis just needed someone to blame, a scapegoat, to unite everyone else. Well, I have to say, if you're in the camp of those last people that believe that the Nazis didn't really hate the Jews, they were just finding someone to blame and finding a particularly twisted way of unifying people through the creation of a common enemy, I present you this, this most disturbing bit of information. In 1945, when the Third Reich was collapsing on all sides, the Nazis defeated really in the East, the Allies pressing from the West, the Germans invested more soldiers' effort and money into the death camps. Instead of withdrawing resources from the camps to fight and defend Germany, the motherland, they doubled down on the death camps. That means that the Nazi administration saw the extermination of the Jews as a higher priority than the preservation of their own nation. They saw the caging up of gypsies, homosexuals, socialists, communists, Catholics, disabled people and Jews as their number one priority. But I leave you with this. Even when caged and treated like animals in ghettos and concentration camps, treated like subhumans, animals, people can still find the incredible capacity for humanity. On the day of this publishing, it's International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I just want to share with you a story of absolute heroism and self-sacrifice to show you that through the most revolting hatred, love and compassion really does endure. And it's the story of Maximilian Kolbe, a Polish Roman Catholic priest who was brought to Auschwitz in 1941 as prisoner 16770. Father Kolbe, along with millions of others, was brought to Auschwitz-Birkenau camp by train and told at the gate that Arbeit macht frei, that work sets you free, the motto of the camp. Prisoners at Auschwitz were slowly and systematically starved, and their pitiful rations were barely enough to sustain a child. One cup of imitation coffee in the morning, a weak soup and half a loaf of bread after work. When food was brought, everyone struggled to get his place, and be sure of a portion. 
for other Maximilian Kolbe, however, he stood aside in spite of the ravages of starvation, and frequently there would be nothing left for him. At other times, he shared his meagre ration of soup and bread with others who hadn't been able to fight their way to the front of the queue. In the harshness of the slaughterhouse, Father Kolbe maintained the gentleness of Christ. At night he would seldom rest. He moved from bunk to bunk, saying, I am a Catholic priest. Is there anything I can do for you? A prisoner later recalled how he and several others often crawled across the floor at night to be near the bed of Father Kolbe, to make their confessions and ask for consolation. Father Kolbe pleaded with his fellow prisoners to forgive their persecutors and to overcome evil with good. When Father Kolbe was beaten by the guards, he never cried out. Instead, he would pray for his tormentors. In order to discourage escapes, Auschwitz camp had a rule that if one man escaped, ten would be killed in retaliation. And in July of 1941, a man from Father Kolbe's bunker had escaped. The fugitive has not been found, the commander Karl Fritsch screamed. You will all pay for this. Ten of you will be locked in the starvation bunker without food or water until you rot and die. The prisoners trembled in terror. A few days in the bunker, without food or water, and a man's intestines dried up, and his brain turned to fire. The ten were selected, and one of the men screamed and cried, My poor wife! He sobbed, My poor children! What will they do? When he uttered this cry of dismay, Maximilian silently stepped forward took off his cap and stood before the commander and said I am a Catholic priest let me take his place I am old and he has a wife and children Karl Fretsch full of disdain for the man allowed it to happen and so Father Kolbe along with nine others, was thrown down the stairs of Building 13 in Block B and simply left there to rot and starve. Some drank their own urine, others licked moisture on the walls, but Maximilian Colbert encouraged the others with prayers, psalms and meditations on the passion of Christ. He looked up to heaven and finally, after five days, the last man left. The Nazi officials had Maximilian executed by lethal injection. Saint Maximilian Kolbe of Auschwitz camp is example to us all that even when dehumanised, caged like an animal, and eventually murdered, 
love and compassion can and does triumph over hatred and evil. This episode of Our Inhuman Condition was edited, recorded and written by me, Arthur Lunagold. And a special thanks for music provided by Lux, Max Richter, the Berlin Philharmonic, the London Symphony Orchestra, Morton Feldman and Alafur Arnold. With special thanks to David Lungston on NPR News, BBC, ABC, CNN and Vox News. Thank you for listening.